Let's just begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that this church is not ours, but it's yours. And it's your idea. And you've told us that you would build your church, not even the demons of hell would interfere with the finished product. And one day, soon, you'll present, your son will present to himself a church that is holy, radiant, without spot or wrinkle. And Father, as we think about that, we want to be a part of that kind of renewal in these last days. Guide us and direct us for Jesus' sake. Amen. I started yesterday by um, introducing myself with this uh, little I attempted to draft my growth in the Christian life by this diagram as to where I was growing, where I was plateaued, and where I was sliding backwards. And I uh, put the uh, crosses in there to indicate at times when I have gotten back to the cross. I'm just trying to see if that is... I put my glasses on, I can tell if that's clear or not. It seem to be... Uh... Tell me when it's clear. Better? In case you want to know how old I am, there I am. Started in 1932. And on my way to hell, when I met in, up with six women who were doing vacation Bible school in a little Baptist church in Ontario, Canada, received Christ as my Savior, put me on a new track. However, unfortunately, the church I was in was dying and has since died. And we moved to another church in the city of Owen Sound, which was more alive, but still with no teaching in the Holy Spirit. And so I struggled during my teenage years with my Christian life thinking that I had to live in my own power, always sinning, confessing, and trying harder. That was my Christian life. And it wasn't until I met the filling of the Holy Spirit at age 20, 1952, and crossed the city to another church and discovered the teaching on the Holy Spirit. He actually come for the express person, purpose of living the Christian life for me. <laughs> what a release. And I look back at my teenage years as being sort of lost years because I didn't know the Holy Spirit. Uh, those crosses, you see a big dip there in 1962. That was language study in Costa Rica, trying to speak Spanish, struggling, couldn't roll an R to save my soul. Found myself in a learner's class. My wife was doing very well, which was hard, hard to take. But I finally escaped out of there, not because I learned the language, but because there were needs to get to Colombia. And I did, I did get the language, was able to roll the R's, and um, we spent the next um, 13 years identified with uh, missions in Colombia and Latin America, Peru and Argentina. 
Obviously, there's many more crosses than are noted there. But one of the things that I think is a very important truth, which I think needs to be impressed and taught, we all know by getting to the cross the first time and seeing a great truth that Christ died for us, the greatest truth in all the world, that's salvation. But the tragedy is most Christians in our churches have only got to the cross the first time and never get, have, have never got back for the second trip, which happened to me in 1952. But I saw another truth, Romans 6. Not only did Christ die for me, but I died with him. I did not any longer have to serve sin. And that was a revelation that has caused my life to take off and to grow and to be able to do something in Christian service. So I talk about getting back to the cross a second time, and of course I don't mean the second time, I mean the third, the fourth, the hundredth time. Luis Palau has said, he went to so every time your will crosses the will of God, it's back to the cross again to deal with self and sin. And that's the great I was in it over in Central Asia here for a month visiting our son and his family. And somebody there, a Southern Baptist missionary, said to me, he said, you know, do you know, I was talking about Romans 6, do you know that, um, that um, what's his name, that pastor, you know, the pastor of that large church kingdom, uh, Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones, has got a whole book written exclusively on how you understand Romans 6. One chapter, whole book. So I looked at that book and uh, learned some more. All right, so that's, uh, my plan is to live to be 85 years of age, 2010, 2017, and uh, plan to go straight to glory as a sweet, mature old man. If my wife were here, she'd say, Arnold, that's good. But that's a process. You need to start now. <laughs> that sweet part. <laughs> so that's the plan. The Lord willing. Now then, just a word about historical drift. This is what I mean by historical drift. Organizations begin with a leader at 9 o'clock on the dial of the clock. By 11 o'clock there's a movement. And by 1 o'clock, there's some problems e emerging. This is the danger zone. And if leadership does not confront historical drift on this slippery slope here, it drifts down to 3 o'clock, which is the monument stage. And at that, time, that point, God lifts his hands from that organization. No matter how good it was 40 years, 100 years before, he lifts his hand. And he moves over to come upon some other movement on the upward side of the curve. And so there's a lot of movements that are on the ecclesiastical scrap heap. And I'm afraid the uh, church where I was converted is one of those that has died since. So that's what I mean by historical drift. How long does it take to go from here to here? It all depends on what kind of leadership that organization has. 
There is in Canada a very liberal church called the United Church of Canada, largest church in Canada, formed back in 1926, and started with 20 very solid um, points of doctrine. And today they are now baptizing or ordaining homosexuals, the most liberal church in Canada. During that same time, another church was started in Toronto called People's Church, a great missionary church. And that was started by Oswald J. Smith. And in 1926, he started the church. And in the year 2006, they now had their fourth pastor. And that church still is holding to their core values. One of them being that they must spend over half of their budget outside the four walls of that church and about several million dollars a year goes to missions as well as other things. A contrast to what happens, how much drift is fostered, how much, how much drift is curbed and impeded and even reversed. So that's historical drift, that curve, Sometimes call that the cursed curve. There was one time uh, interviewing one of our Peruvian pastors back in Canada. He'd been my student down there in Peru, and I asked him, I said, you know, uh, how is it that the Peruvian church, over a period of um, uh, 25 years, has been able to maintain this emphasis on evangelism and on growth? It's never abated. Most organizations, they lose that. He started to answer, his English is pretty good, <laughs> he started to answer and then he said, oh, by the way, I think when you were teaching us down there in the uh, Bible college, high school, you talked about this curve. I think you called it the damn curve. <laughs> As a little strong release, we wouldn't quite say that, we would say the, um, the, the cursed curve. <laughs> Anyhow, pretty well lost that seminar after that. But uh, this uh, whole matter of, of uh, <coughs> historical drift is um, a subject which I must have organized here. <coughs> There's nothing new. If you read sociology, you'll discover they have a great time with this matter of analyzing Christian organizations, what happens to them. And one of the things that they have discovered is the story of John Wesley. And they picked up on Wesley. And Wesley, as he watched these organizations, the Methodists, develop over a number of years, in his latter years, he wrote uh, a statement on what he saw happening. Keep in mind the Wesleyans, the Methodists, started by seeing the conversion of the scum of the earth, people off the street, soundly converted, transformed. And as a result of their transformation, they became very responsible citizens. And they became very uh, hardworking people and frugal. 
And through time, they became leaders. And other organizations trusted them with their money. And over a generation or two, they became very, very affluent. And as John Wesley saw that, he wrote this. <coughs> Reverend Richards has decreased. The essence of religion has decreased in the same proportion. I do not see how it is possible in the nature of things for any revival of religion to continue long. For religion must necessarily produce both industry and frugality, and these cannot but produce riches. And as riches increase, so will pride, anger, and love of the world in all of its branches. In other words, the things that made them great as new believers over time produced jealousy, affluence, riches, and becomes, became the factors of their demise over time. That became known by the sociologists of um, that century as the Wesleyan law, the Wesleyan law, dealing with that whole matter of um, what happens over time. <coughs> now, you may um, wonder how I got involved in this, and I just want to say quickly that uh, I've been uh, tracing and observing this historical drift for probably 35 years. I saw it happen in those churches in my teenage years. My first pastorate, I saw seeds of it. And then I got involved in missions. I discovered in missions, especially if you go to some of the older mission fields like India and um, China and some of these places, you'll see, for example, a Christian hospital. Maybe it's called the Presbyterian Hospital. You say to yourself, wonderful, a Christian hospital. And as you start to investigate it, you discover to your upper, utter horror, it used to be a Christian hospital 40 years ago. But now it's just a hospital with a Christian name, as secular as any other hospital. Same thing happens with, uh, with uh, institutions, colleges, schools. It's really as a disease institutions. And so um, over time, these erode into being just secular operations. That's good news that they're not all completely sold out. Some of them, uh, over time, they used to have the policy of talking to the patients as they came and gave them counseling. But over time, no time for that. And the other subtle thing is they begin hiring non-Christians. And that erodes it ultimately into a secular organization. Now, you may ask, is this a biblical disease, historical drift? Well, it is, very evidently is. Just take your Bibles and look at um, the issue of generations over in the book of Judges. Who's got a Bible here? Turn to Judges chapter 2, and... Would somebody please read chapter 2, verses 7 to 10. Uh, that um, is a reminder of what has happened over three generations. We have the generation of Joshua, 
the generation of the elders outlived Joshua. And then down in verse 10 it says, when that generation, the second generation, had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor his works. So in three generations, it has slipped to that degree where they have actually seen the faith lost in three generations. I'm sorry this book was not around when I was trying to raise our five children with my wife. You all know the name of Bruce Wilkerson and his fame for a number of books. <laughs> He's not famous for this, but this is, one of his be- this is his best book. Because this book is all about how to rear first-generation children. It's called Bruce Wilkerson, Walk Through the Bible, Prayer of Jabez, and now a missionary in South Africa. We're speaking in my church in Toronto next Sunday. But he is uh, a man who has done some thinking about this matter of generations. And he uh, outlines the three generations here. Joshua, elders, another generation. And shows what happens in different generations. The first generation knows God. And if I was there, I would change the second generation. Knows about God and knows not God. First-hand faith, second-hand faith, no faith. That's one of the big factors in historical drift, the generational issue, moving from generation to generation. Coming down to the second one, the uh, key word for the first generation, commitment. Second generation, compromise and conflict. The one that disturbs me the most and makes me the most nervous is the last one, which is about... um, The Bible, the Word of God. First generation lives by the commandments of the, the Bible teaches. Today we've been talking about what the Bible really says about the matter of divorce, uh, marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And uh, we've drifted away from that, obviously. The middle church lives by what their fellow Christians do and believe is right to do. That's where we are. Not what um, the Bible says, but what other Christians are doing. And then, of course, the other is um, lives by what the people, the culture, want to do. And uh, in the bottom of that last section, it says, referring to the Word of God, what is right in God's eyes. Second generation, what is right in our eyes. And what's right in my eyes in terms of the third generation. So um, that is a reminder of uh, what happens over time. So just a few other references uh, from the New Testament here. Um, Hebrews chapter 2, there's um, five warnings in Hebrews. The second warning in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3 is, um, let's just look at that and read it. Somebody got it there? Hebrews That word drift there comes from the Greek word that uh, describes the uh, art of, or the work of the sailor from the uh, 
from ships coming into a harbor. And because of the carelessness of the ship, of the dock hands, the ship slides, drifts by the harbor. And that's kind of a warning that's being given there concerning drift. But the probably the greatest um, text that uh, reminds us of drift is the last words of Jesus found in Revelation 2 and 3. There were seven churches, seven local churches, actual churches, and Jesus came and did an audit on those seven churches. And as you read them through, you discover that in five of the seven, he asked them to repent. How old were those churches? Laodicea, Smyrna, Ephesus. 60, 40, 50, 60 years. How long does it take a church to drift from vision, movement, to monument? Well, according to that, you can do it in 40 or 50 years. One generation. That's how quickly it can happen. So, these are the things we're concerned about. Other texts would be 1 Timothy 4, 1 to 5, where it talks about having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. That's the result of drift. And there's many other passages. And you realize that the Pharisees that were the target of Jesus in his day, and he rebuked them constantly for their legalism and their hypocrisy, to realize that 300 years earlier, they were the spiritual leaders of Israel. And those were very godly people. But over time, they became what they became known as Pharisees. All right, we want to move on here quickly to um, what are the causes. Let me just uh, list them here. I won't go into much detail because we did that yesterday for some who were there with me yesterday. Because I want to get to the um, other part of how do we reverse and impede drift. Original sin is one great cause. Humanity is flawed. This is a problem of the church, also a problem of organizations, corporations. It is a result of the toll of time and we've seen that in the generational slippage. It is um, lost and fed by the passing of the baton in terms of leadership from one uh, leadership to another. I'll say more about that in terms of uh, curbing drift. It is um, certainly one which reminds us that the redemptive lift in missiology and work of missions, we talk a lot about redemptive lift. You go into a country, you lead people to Christ, and they become Christians. That affects their family. That affects their family circle. And ultimately, it results in a redemptive lift of that whole social structure. I remember I saw a man come to know Christ in Colombia, Popeyan, and he was a man who was typical of that culture. He uh, had a large family. His kids were in school, had no shoes to go to school. He had a second woman he was supporting in the street. 
He'd leave half his paycheck to the bar. But when he got converted, he brought his paycheck home. He dropped the second woman. He had now money to buy shoes for his children. And that was a social uplift to that whole family unit. And um, that's what it does. Redemptive lift is real. Some people I used to ask the question in those days in Columbia, how do you reach the middle class? And the answer of Donald McGavern of church growth was, you work with the lower class. And within a generation, you have a middle class church because it lifts society. But as John Wesley reminds us, the bad news about redemptive, redemptive lift is it ultimately comes back to haunt you. Because as you get more educated, more affluent, they begin to uh, erode their Christian principles. So that's a big problem of, um, of uh, redemptive lift. Now, um, the other big enemy that causes drift to take place is a whole matter of the impact of culture and the pressure of culture. This is a complicated diagram here, but what I'm trying to say is here is the church sitting in the middle of the Canadian culture. And the church's foundation is Christ, who is unchangeable, immutable, and it stands firm regardless of what happens to culture all around it. But what happens with culture is that a subculture forms in the side here, such as a subculture of cohabitation instead of marriage. That happened some years ago in Canada, but initially the government rejected it, but today has embraced it. There's another subculture here, let's say this is um, homosexuality. And our government, as I mentioned earlier, has um, embraced that to the point of redefining marriage to include same-sex marriages. All of that happens. Initially, it's rejected, resisted by government. Through time, it embraces it. And the sad part is the church, which is unchangeable, immutable, moves about one decade behind the culture and moves slowly to embrace the same kinds of subcultures. And that's historical drift. Tragic. But it's happening constantly. And over time, that produces nominalism. Here's a diagram from a book I called In Name Only. And as you travel around the world and look at missionary fields that are old, you see a lot of nominalism. People are a Christian in name only. And you have second and third and fourth generation Christians. So a reminder there, in the first generation, there is um, the pioneers, first-hand faith. Second generation, about 60% is swallowed up by nominalism. Fourth generation, maybe two-thirds or third generation, fourth generation, about 85%. I'm afraid in some of our fields, in my denomination, such as the Philippines, parts of Africa, uh, Indonesia, we have a very large church, is, um, has become very, very nominal. And so there's actually a challenge to re-evangelize the Christians. So those are some of the things that have um, 
caused historical drift to um, grow and to uh, expand. There's a layout or a handout back there on the table I just put on this morning. It's a Barna study, which he did. He studied 150 lifestyle issues of Christians in North America. And he tried to check out how Christians handle those issues like abortion and such things as um, the lottery. And uh, he's got all kinds of things in this list here. Divorce. And then he asked the same question of non-Christians and tallied the results. The tragic discovery is that there's a very small percentage difference between how Christians handle these lifestyle issues and how non-Christians handle them. So therein we have a serious problem with culture. Now, um, it was uh, Francis Schaeffer, as I mentioned earlier, in the 80s, who lamented what was happening to culture and how it was, um, uh, his great concern was that, uh, or the abortion issue, that um, church was accommodating scripture to culture. And that was what was happening to the whole sanctity of life. Uh, Chuck Swindoll, who is well known, the name, I picked this up some years ago, talking about marriage. He says, within the last three years, I have watched about 10 marriages dissolve. All Christian marriages, all very much involved in Christian activities and church ministries. In each case, one of the mates in this each marriage had willfully and skillfully accommodated his or her theology so the scripture actually approved their plans to walk out. There was no ugly fights, no bold announcements like, I'm denying the faith. No need for that. Calmly and with reserved respectability, they simply left against my counsel and strong efforts to stop them against scriptural injunctions, against their mates' desires, in spite of the certain damage to their children, and regardless of their, of their shame against the name of the God, of their God and the church of Jesus Christ. How did they do it? They did it by accommodating theology. That's how. The enemy wins many a victory by this means. So there is another victim of historical drift, the culture. All right, well, um, obviously in our churches is another major factor that causes drift is our weak view of Scripture. I talked about how some seminaries like Fuller Seminary shifted their view of Scripture your statement of scripture from inerrancy in the 1960s from the beginning to authority of scripture. It sounds good until you see what it means. 
the authority of Scripture. And the authority of Scripture turns out to be the book overall is authoritative. It's our guide. But there's certain parts of it you need to remember is time and place specific. And there's certain parts that were less inspired than other parts. Overall authority, but coming down to actually interpreting Scripture, especially with Paul's teaching on women in uh, 1 Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy and 1 Corinthians. So, and I would say that on good authority, that the large mega churches, most of them, especially Willow Creek, which has taken the world by storm in Chicago. And about 75% of our churches in our denomination send their whole staff down to Willow Creek once or twice every two or three years. Willow Creek, to become a member of Willow Creek, you have to subscribe to women as elders, first of all. They have bought into the same view of Scripture as Fuller Seminary. And Willow Creek affects some 75 countries of the world. Yes? They do. Yeah. We only have about seven elders, but they have them more in. And that is led by uh, a theologian from Wheaton College. Used to be a great conservative college, as you mentioned earlier. But today they've compromised, and the historical drift is alive and well there because. Gilbert's Biasikian, um, the retired professor of uh, Wheaton, has written the book called Beyond Gender Boundaries. And that's a typical, classic expression of the egalitarian position of women. And he's a founding member of Willow Creek. So that's how culture is taking its toll. Uh, Bill Hybels. Yeah, he's a minister. All right, uh, looking here at um, a more positive aspect. What are the answers to historical drift? How can we address it? The thesis of my book, a couple of theses in there. One is that historical drift is inevitable because it's happening with all human organizations, including the church, because we're dealing with flawed humanity. So it's inevitable. But godly leadership, godly courageous leadership, can make a difference. Can make a difference. if they will begin to address the issue from high noon, especially through this area of a slippery slope. Now, I've been a denominational leader for eight years, and I know how tough it is to uh, deliver on that, because you have a lot of people out there who uh, have bought into the cultural emphasis on some of these issues. Well, there's also a book around. It's a corporate book, a secular book, but it's called Built to Last. And it's a research on 18 
corporations in North America that have lasted for over 100 years. And these um, graduates of Stanford Business School in California have done this research. They have tried to discover what were the keys to their success. And it's amazing how that particular book has impacted the evangelical church in North America. Bill Hybels has brought in one of the authors, Jim Collins. He's not a Christian, but he's a, he's a seeker. And an interviewer about his, his book. And um, I showed that to our um, pastors of our large churches one time. And I thought I'd just show it and then move on. They wanted to stop and discuss that. <laughs> and discuss the four key issues. Secrets of that longevity of those organizations. And our leadership is so open to receiving counsel for any direction. Anything successful, anything has, anything has numbers, they gravitate to it. So we discussed, discussed that. And before I had my time with these uh, past, I said, uh, one more thing I want to show you before I hand it over to you for your, for your own agenda. And I put on the video by Jim Cimbala of Brooklyn Tabernacle. How many of you have seen that video? The video of Jim Cimbala? Um, Brooklyn Tabernacle. The man who built a church 25, 30 years ago based on prayer. And has grown now to be a very large church with three services on Sunday. The choir is famous. His wife leads the choir. They don't read music and it fills stadiums. And uh, I put him on. And he talks about my house shall be called a house of prayer. Powerful message. At the end of all that, <laughs> the man who was leaving that, leading that seminar said, well, I guess Cook has given us the bookends. Here's Willow Creek over here. <laughs> we know about that. And now we see another church being built on prayer. Brooklyn Tabernacle. Miles apart. But um, good news that um, that church is also getting some, um, some uh, profile. Now, there's another uh, way of looking at this, um, this curve is to look at based on the lifestyle, life cycle. Over here on the left side, we have birth, adolescence, maturity, empty nest, death. Same curve, but helpful for trying to place your organization or your church on that curve. Where are you as a movement? We had a man come in and help us with our evaluation of our denomination, and he um, had this look at this. He explained it to us. V is for vision. I is for inclusion and evangelism, outreach. P is for programs. M is for management. And we broke up in small groups and we tried to analyze our denomination, which is 118 years old, and tried to place ourselves on that scale. Where were we? 
I was, uh, would like to think we came out here at Prime. <laughs> That's a great place to be, Prime. But after our evaluation, looking at ourselves, we came out empty nest. Empty nest. Feeling good about the past. Like to rehearse the past. A little uncertain about the future. <laughs> Kids have left home. Empty nest. We've had success. But here we are on the declining side of this scale. And the challenge of us in that uh, exercise was to see how we could move our denomination back up here to prime. And that's the great challenge to leadership, to move back up to prime after having slipped down over the slippery slope. And so, what's uh, the bad news about empty nest? Well, empty nest says that vision is not very strong, Inclusion's not very strong. Um, programs are there. Our strongest part is management. Good old management. <laughs> Keep the institution going. That's the last one to die. <laughs> management. So, uh, not good news for us as a denomination. Oh, <laughs> the Christian and Missionary Alliance. Yes, Christian Missionary Alliance. I'm a transfer in from those churches I mentioned earlier. <laughs> but um, we all have concerns for our denominations. Well, um, what are the areas for impeding drift? I want to just list a number of areas where I think we can address the area of drift. Our time slipping away here. One, the major area is at the local church level. You look at the book of Acts and see what God the Holy Spirit did from time to time with the local churches. Starting in chapter 5, that was a wake-up call. Church discipline. And then Sapphira. Struck dead. I think it was Stephen mentioned the other day to me, people forget that's in the New Testament. <laughs> and it says after that happened, there was a great sense of fear came over the church. I remember when, some years ago when one of our large churches in Canada had a case where a young medical student attempted to abort his girlfriend who was pregnant. The girl died in the process. And that hit the fan in the church. I remember the senior pastor saying to me, he said, Arnold, I think that happened just to remind us that this whole matter of abortion among Christians was creeping into the evangelical church. And he chose to expose it in that way. So the local church. And we had the deacons there in chapter 6 holding to their priorities or the apostles use that church, naming deacons to handle the serving of tables or they give themselves to prayer and the word. So I do think that the local church is where you have to address drift. In the local church at the elders level. And the decision you make at the local church on a Wednesday night 
about whether you'll marry this person or whether you won't marry that person in that church. What you'll do about standards for elders and all the other issues that come at them. That's the most important point to curb drift. Because you may think, well, that happens at the district level, happens at the national level, denominational level. Well, time has told us that if local churches don't hold the line on morality, on high standards, and church discipline, the district level and the national letter will have to crumble and conform to the local church's desire. So, this is where you begin. The whole matter of um, this is a um, number of comments have been made by the Southern Baptist, uh, about Southern Baptists. Are there some Southern Baptists here, there, this group? Okay. Well, I have um, done quite a bit of study of Southern Baptists in this whole matter of historical rift, and uh, I have been impressed by what happened between 1979 and 1999. Elected conservative president every year. And there's a lawyer who's a judge uh, who um, was involved in that. But um, they did it because the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, most amazing, he's not full-time, he's still got his church. And he's only elected for one or two years. But during that time, he has some very specific powers. And one of his powers is he can name and nominate all the members of the Committee on Committees in that huge organization. So he, for 20 years, they elected conservative members on the Committee on Committees. And then these Committee on Committees, there was a Committee on Six Seminaries, and uh, this committee nominated conservative people on that committee for the seminaries. And over 20 years, they've seen their six seminaries take a U-turn back to conservatism when they're heading the, down the road to liberalism. And some of the most conservative seminaries in uh, North America are Southern Baptists because of leadership. I know the Southern Baptists have a lot of different people in there. They have conservatives, they have moderates, and they have liberals. and uh, So it's a very large organization. But that's one of the good news stories that what can happen with evangelical conservative leadership being allowed to choose key members of committees. Now the search committee is one of the powerful committees in churches and this uh, whole matter of um, all this Replacing leadership is a critical question. What's the normal thing that's done when the church, when they need to... Sorry. What's, what's the normal action you take when you need to get a new pastor? Or a college needs to get a new, new uh, president? What do you do? First thing you do. Get a committee, call the search committee. Make sure that all the various interest groups on in the church are represented in that committee. 
You send them out to find out. Well, not all organizations do that. Most do. But Moody Bible Institute does not do that. When George Sweeting was finishing his time at Moody, the board of Moody said to George Sweeting, we want you to go out and find your successor, a search committee of one. Wow. He went out and he found Joe Stoll, who has been there for some years and just stepped down. And Moody never missed the beat. There was little loss or slippage in leadership at Moody because the incumbent was allowed to go out and find a successor. Not many organizations do that. That's a good way to curb grip. People's Church in Toronto has four pastors. The first pastor was Oswald J. His son took over from him, Paul. And Oswald J. or Paul found a pastor down in Atlanta, John Hall, outstanding young leader, came and affirmed the Smith families and moved the church forward. He stayed for seven years. And then Charles Price from England has taken over. Another good man. And over 100 or over about 70, 80 years, they've lost very little slippage to their leadership. We can learn something about that, I think, in terms of leadership. Well, um, this matter of leadership, the critical point is that uh, after about 20 or 30 years, uh, a pastor or a leader of organization has to be replaced. And that's a critical time because if it is a good transition here to a new leader, it'll move on without any loss. And this little diagram here talks about what is called this jumping the sigmoid curve, the sigmoid curve. And they're saying here, here's the bell curve, here's the slippery slope over here. You're changing leadership up in here. This is an area of tension because you have new leadership coming in, you have old leadership going out, and you have to face that time of crisis, handle it well, and if it's handled well, instead of going down over the curve, you start another curve on the upward slope. And that is the secret in terms of technology and administration to have a successful transition of leadership and to avoid drift. Any questions on that? Well, a lot more could be said about all that. Other venues for curbing drift is local church bylaws. You can have a bylaw in your church that um, speaks not only to the current tenure of the pastor, but to successive pastors. One of our churches I know in Toronto had a bylaw for some years that they would not remarry people in that church. And that's one way to have the church take responsibility for those key issues. Publishing houses. Publishing houses can be a great way to impede drift if they will hold to their core principles. Many bookstores and publishing houses are surviving today on selling holy hardware instead of publishing books. And the books they do publish sometimes are how-to books. How-to books. Instead of publishing good, solid books. So that's another area of... Uh, 
concerned. <clears throat> well, another uh, place to uh, curb drift academic institutions is in a critical area and how you control them. Uh, Dallas Seminary, I understand, is one of the ones that do the better job of that. They have a very high view of scripture. And sometimes when professors come in, they sign a doctoral statement and uh, that is not reviewed. Some have um, signed again every year. Understand that Dallas used to do better than that. They would actually bring professors in on an annual basis and they would interview them to see if there has been any drift in their position over that year. That's an organization that um, takes seriously the matter of historical drift. So um, that's uh, an important step because academic institutions are, um, are very much a sitting duck for historical drift. Norman Geisler, who is a good conservative theologian, he talks about how to curb drift at the college level. And he gives the illustration of um, being a pilot of prop planes. He said the old prop planes, pilots will tell you this, any pilots here? that uh, when the prop plane takes off, it's a tendency to veer left. So the pilots used to say to themselves, aim right to go straight. And Geisler says that's a good word of counsel for Christian leaders. Aim right to go straight. Because uh, if you aim straight, you're going to end up on the... On the um, left side of things, and, um, and that's the liberal side. Well, we're almost out of time here. Reversing historical drift has many things that become, you can do organizationally, do structurally. I have found trying to lead a denomination that uh, when you start about um, doing evaluation of uh, the denomination, 80% immediately jump on board to work on structural renewal and 20% want to talk about spiritual renewal. I was saying to them, I want to have 20% structural effort and 80% spiritual. And of course, that's not where a lot of people are. They want to fix the system, fix the denomination. So, there's a whole matter of how to address the issue of um, getting back to the cross a second time. There's this uh, overhead out there talking about the second trip to the cross. Um, if you uh, want to work on sanctification, here's something here that may uh, confuse you. If it does, throw it in the circular file. But I got playing around with these circles one time, defining what is sanctification. And I discovered it's a very large word because it stretches all the way from conversion to um, glorification. 
But uh, my point here is there's four aspects of sanctification. There's positional, there's experiential, there's progressive, and there is consummated. It is my observation from looking at the Christian church, the evangelical church, that the Reformed people are very strong on positional sanctification and progressive, but they bypass this whole area of experiential sanctification. And this is where the holiness movement comes in. This is where Keswick comes in. This is where some denominations with a strong emphasis on deeper life come in. And that's the whole area. And that area, if neglected, will hasten historical drift on any organization. So that's out there for your um, perusal. Now, I just want to say as we wrap this up here, last uh, four chapters of my book is on how God wants to address historical drift. It's all about the matter of revival. Revival. Now, I may say something more about this tomorrow morning, but um, revival is one of those subjects that um, we tend to uh, accept and it's a motherhood issue. Who wants to be against revival? As you know, we had a so-called Toronto Blessing Revival in my city some years ago, which impacted England and North America. Questionable revival. And um, John Wesley, one time near the end of his life, saw this movement towards um, affluence and this drift in the Methodist movement. And so he prayed one time, Oh God, send us again an old-time revival. Pause. Without the defects. Amen. <laughs> and then he said, Lord, send it anyhow with the defects. We desperately need it. <laughs> because revivals always have uh, some challenging sides to them. So revival. That's a whole other subject, but I believe that God wants to move in our midst in revival in these last days. Well, I think there's been uh, several organizations in recent years that have promoted the church, the house church. I think the house church uh, can be, um, well, it obviously is very biblical. There were no buildings until the second or third century. So that's the way to go. It's not easy. I was over in Central Europe last month, and they can't have public services there, so they have to have house churches. And I was saying to some of them after being in these house churches for four weeks, I said, well, the biggest problem with house churches is biological church growth. Kids. <laughs> 32 kids, five families, 32 people in house churches. It's hard to accomplish all you want to accomplish in the teaching part of that, but house churches makes good sense in North America. We have these large homes, much larger than we need. Why not use them and have a lot more money to send to missions and other things? So it seems to me that house churches... Yes, sir? Cell churches would be another name for it. Yes? Uh-huh. Right. Any other question? Yes? 
one of the big advantages of house churches is accountability. Everybody knows if you're not giving your tithe in a house church. So there's a lot of good accountability in that system. Any other comments? There's uh, handouts in there, most of this material, so help yourself to it. Thanks for your attention. Let me just pray. Father, I pray that you'll raise up a generation of impeders adrift. Help us, Lord, to take our stand on that slippery slope of culture and take our stand for that which is biblical, that which is clear. And even though some of these things sound rather radical, as to the house church, this view of marriage and no divorce and all this, Father, these things sound so strange to us because they've been hidden for so long that they sound like heresy when we bring them on today. But Lord, help us to find our way to be in Peter's of Drift so that your church will indeed be that church which is glorious and radiant and holy when Christ comes to receive it. In Jesus' name, amen.